For first, how will he be able to distinguish between the long abode of an unmortified lust and the dominion of sin which cannot befall a regenerate person? Secondly, how can he promise himself that it shall ever be otherwise with him, or that his lust will cease tumultuating and seducing when he sees it fixed and abiding, and hath done so for many days, and hath gone through a variety of conditions with him. It may be it hath tried mercies and afflictions, and those possibly so remarkable that the soul could not avoid the taken special notice of them. It may be it hath weathered out many a storm, and passed under much variety of gifts in the administration of the word. And will it prove an easy thing to dislodge an inmate pleading a title by prescription? Old neglected wounds are often mortal, always dangerous, and dwelling distempers grow rusty and stubborn by continuance and ease and quiet. Lust is such an inmate as, if it can plead time and some prescription, will not easily be ejected. As it never dies of itself, so if it be not daily killed, it will always gather strength. 2. Secret pleas of the heart for the countenancing of itself, and keeping up its peace, notwithstanding the abiding of a lust, without a vigorous gospel attempt for its mortification, is another dangerous symptom of a deadly distemper in the heart. Now there be several ways whereby this may be done. I shall name some of them as one. When upon thoughts, perplexing thoughts about sin, instead of applying himself to the destruction of it, a man searches his heart to see what evidences he can find of a good condition, notwithstanding that sin and lust, so that it may go well with him. For a man to gather up his experiences of God, to call them to mind, to collect them, consider, try, improve them, is an excellent thing, a duty practiced by all the saints, commended in the Old Testament and the New. This was David's work when he communed with his own heart and called to remembrance the former loving kindness of the Lord. This is a duty that Paul sets us to practice, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. And as it is in itself excellent, so it hath beauty added to it by a proper season, a time of trial or temptation or disquietness of the heart about sin, is a picture of silver to set off this golden apple as Solomon speaks. But now to do it for this end, to satisfy conscience, which cries and calls for another purpose, is a desperate device of a heart in love with sin. When a man's conscience shall deal with him, when God shall rebuke him for the sinful distemper of his heart, if he, instead of applying himself to get that sin pardoned in the blood of Christ and mortified by his Spirit, shall relieve himself by any such other evidences as he hath, or thinks himself to have, and so disentangle himself from under the yoke that God was putting on his neck, his condition is very dangerous, his wound hardly curable. Thus a Jews, under the gallings of their own consciences and the convincing preaching of our Savior, supported themselves with this, that they were Abraham's children, and on that account accepted with God, 
and so countenance themselves in all abominable wickedness to their utter ruin. This is, in some degree, a blessing of a man's self, and saying that upon one account or other he shall have peace, although he adds drunkenness to thirst. Love of sin, undervaluation of peace, and of all tastes of love from God are enwrapped in such a frame. Such a one plainly shows that if he can but keep up hope of escaping the wrath to come, he can be well content to be unfruitful in the world at any distance from God that is not final separation. What is to be expected from such a heart? 2. By applying grace and mercy to an unmortified sin, where one not sincerely endeavored to be mortified, is this deceit carried on. This is a sign of a heart greatly entangled with the love of sin. When a man hath secret thoughts in his heart, not unlike those of Naaman about his worshipping in the house of Ramon, in all other things I will walk with God, but in this thing God be merciful unto me. His condition is sad. It is true, indeed, a resolution to this purpose, to indulge a man's self in any sin on the account of mercy, seems to be, and doubtless in any course is, altogether inconsistent with Christian sincerity, and is a badge of a hypocrite, and is the turning of the grace of God into wantonness. Yet I doubt not but, through the craft of Satan and their own remaining unbelief, the children of God may themselves sometimes be ensnared with this deceit of sin, or else Paul would never have so cautioned them against it as he doth. Romans 6, 1 and 2 Yea, indeed, there is nothing more natural than for fleshly reasonings to grow high and strong upon this account. The flesh would fain be indulged unto upon the account of grace, and every word that is spoken of mercy it stands ready to catch at and to pervert it to its own corrupt aims and purposes. To apply mercy, then, to a sin not vigorously mortified is to fulfill the end of the flesh upon the gospel. These and many other ways and wiles a deceitful heart will sometimes make use of to countenance itself in its abominations. Now, when a man with his sin is in this condition, that there is a secret liking of the sin prevalent in his heart, and though his will be not wholly set upon it, yet he have an imperfect velity towards it, he would practice it were it not for such and such considerations, and hereupon relieves himself other ways than by the mortification and pardon of it in the blood of Christ. That man's wounds stink and are corrupt, and he will, without speedy deliverance, be at the door of death. Number three. Frequency of success in sin's seduction, in obtaining the prevailing consent of the will unto it, is another dangerous symptom. This is what I mean. When the sin spoken of gets the consent of the will with some delight, though it be not actually outwardly perpetrated, yet it hath success. A man may not be able, upon outward considerations, to go along with sin to that which James calls the finishing of it, 
as to the outward acts of sin, when yet the will of sinning may be actually obtained, then hath it, I say, success. Now if any lust be able thus far to prevail in the soul of any man, as his condition may possibly be very bad and himself be unregenerate, so it cannot possibly be very good but dangerous, and it is all one upon the matter whether this be done by the choice of the will or by inadvertency, for that inadvertency itself is in a manner chosen. When we are inadvertent and negligent, where we are bound to watchfulness and carefulness, then inadvertency doth not take off from the voluntariness of what we do thereupon. For although men do not choose and resolve to be negligent and inadvertent, yet if they choose the things that will make them so, they choose inadvertency itself as a thing may be chosen in its cause. And let not men think that the evil of their hearts is in any measure extenuated, because they seem for the most part to be surprised into that consent which they seem to give unto it. For it is negligence of their duty in watching over their hearts that betrays them into what that surprisal. Number four. When a man fighteth against his sin only with arguments from the issue or the punishment due unto it, this is a sign that sin hath taken great possession of the will, and that in the heart there is a superfluity of naughtiness. Such a man as opposes nothing to the seduction of sin and lust in his heart, but fear of shame among men or hell from God, is sufficiently resolved to do the sin if there were no punishment attending it, which what it differs from living in the practice of sin I know not. Those who are Christ's and are acted in their obedience upon gospel principles have the death of Christ, the love of God, the detestable nature of sin, the preciousness of communion with God, a deep-grounded abhorrency of sin as sin, to oppose to any seduction of sin, to all the working, strivings, fightings of lust in their hearts. So did Joseph. How shall I do this great evil, saith he, and sin against the Lord, my good and gracious God? And Paul, the love of Christ constraineth us. And, having received these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all pollution of the flesh and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. But now if a man be so under the power of his lust, that he hath nothing but law to oppose it withal, if he cannot fight against it with gospel weapons, but deals with it altogether with hell and judgment, which are the proper arms of the law, it is most evident that sin has possessed itself of his will and affections to a very great prevalency in conquest. Such a person has cast off, as to the particular spoken of, the conduct of renewing grace, and is kept from ruin only by restraining grace. And so far as he fallen from grace, and returned under the power of the law. And can it be thought that this is not a great provocation to Christ, that men should cast off his easy gentle yoke and rule and cast himself under the iron yoke of the law merely out of indulgence unto their lust try thyself by this also when thou art by sin driven to make a stand 
so that thou must either serve it and rush at the command of it into folly, like the horse into the battle, or make head against it to suppress it, what doth thou say to thy soul? What doth thou expostulate with thyself? Is this all? Hell will be the end of this course. Vengeance will meet with me and find me out. It is time for thee to look about thee. Evil lies at thy door. Paul's main argument to events that sin shall not have dominion over believers is that they are not under the law but under grace. Romans 6.14 If thy contendings against sin be all on legal accounts from legal principles and motives, what assurance canst thou attain unto that sin shall not have dominion over thee which will be thy ruin? Yea, Know that this reserve will not long hold out. If thy lust has driven thee from stronger gospel forts, it will speedily prevail against this also. Do not suppose that such considerations will deliver thee when thou hast voluntarily given up to thine enemy those helps and means of preservation which have a thousand times their strength. Rest assuredly in this, that unless thou recover thyself with speed from this condition, the thing that thou fearest will come upon thee. What gospel principles do not, legal motives cannot do. Number five, when it is probable that there is or may be somewhat of judiciary hardness, or at least of chastening punishment, in thy lust or as disquieting, this is another dangerous symptom, that God doth sometimes leave even those of his own under the perplexing power at least of some lust or sin, to correct them for former sins, negligence and folly, I no way doubt. Hence with that complaint of the church, why hast thou hardened us from the fear of thy name? Isaiah 58:17, That this is his way of dealing with unregenerate man, no man questions. But how shall a man know whether there be anything of God's chastening hand in his being left to the disquietment of his distemper? Answer, examine thy heart and ways. What was the state and condition of thy soul before thou fellest into the entanglements of that sin which now thou soul complainest of? Hadst thou been negligent in duties? Hadst thou lived inordinately to thyself? Is there the guilt of any great sin lying upon thee unrepented of? A new sin may be permitted, as well as a new affliction sent, to bring an old sin to remembrance. Hast thou received any imminent mercy, protection, deliverance, which thou didst not improve in a due manner, nor wast thankful for? Or hast thou been exercised with any affliction without laboring for the appointed end of it? Or hast thou been wanting to the opportunities of glorifying God in thy generation, which in his good providence he had graciously afforded unto thee? Or hast thou conformed thyself unto the world and the men of it, through the abounding of temptations in the days wherein thou livest? If thou findest this to have been thy state, awake, call upon God, Thou art fast asleep in a storm of anger round about thee. 6. When thy lust hath already withstood particular dealings from God against it, 
This condition is described, Isaiah 57:17. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. God had dealt with them about their prevailing lust in that several ways by affliction and desertion, but they held out against all. This is a sad condition, which nothing but mere sovereign grace, as God expresses it in the next verse, can relieve a man in, and which no man ought to promise himself or bear himself upon. God oftentimes in his providential dispensations meets with a man and speaks particularly to the evil of his heart as he did to Joseph's brethren in their selling of him into Egypt. This makes a man reflect on his sin and judge himself in particular for it. God makes it to be the voice of the danger, affliction, trouble, sickness that he is in or under. Sometimes in reading of the word, God makes a man stay on something that cuts him to the heart and shakes him as to his present condition. More frequently, in the hearing of the word preached, his great ordinance for conviction, conversion, and edification doth he meet with men. God often hews men by the sword of his word in that ordinance, strikes directly on their bosom beloved lust, startles the sinner, makes him engage unto the mortification and relinquishment of the evil of his heart. Now if his lust have taken such hold on him as to enforce him to break these bands of the Lord, and to cast these cords from him, if it overcomes these convictions and gets again into its old posture, if it can cure the wounds its soul receives, that soul is in a sad condition. Unspeakable are the evils which attend such a frame of heart. Every particular warning to a man in such an estate is an inestimable mercy. How then doth he despise God in them who holds out against them? And what infinite patience is this in God that he doth not cast off such a one, and swear in his wrath that he shall never enter into his rest? These and many other evidences are there of a lust that is dangerous, if not mortal. As our Savior said of the evil spirit, this kind goes not out but by fasting and prayer. So I say, of lust of this kind, an ordinary course of mortification will not do it. Extraordinary ways must be fixed on. This is the first particular direction. Consider whether the lust or sin you are contending with hath any of these dangerous symptoms attending of it. Before I proceed, I must give you one caution by the way, lest any be deceived by what has been spoken. Whereas I say the things and evils above mentioned may befall true believers, let not any that finds the same things in himself thence or from thence conclude that he is a true believer. These are the evils that believers may fall into and be ensnared withal, not the things that constitute a believer. A man may as well conclude that he is a believer because he is an adulterer, because David that was sold fell into adultery as concluded from the signs foregoing, which are the evils of sin and Satan in the hearts of believers. The seventh chapter of the Romans contains the description of a regenerate man. He that shall consider what is spoken of his dark side, of his unregenerate part, of the indwelling power and violence of sin remaining in him, and because he finds the like in himself, 
conclude that he is a regenerate man will be deceived in his reckoning. It is all one as if you should argue, A wise man may be sick and wounded, yea, do some things foolishly. Therefore, everyone who is sick and wounded and does things foolishly is a wise man. Or as if a silly, deformed creature, hearing one speak of a beautiful person, should say that he had a mark or a scar that much disfigured him, should conclude that because he hath himself scars and moles and warts, he also is beautiful. If you will have evidences of your being believers, it must be from those things that constitute men believers. He that hath these things in himself may safely conclude, If I am a believer, I am a most miserable one. But that any man is so, he must look for other evidences, if he will have peace. Chapter 10 The second direction is this. Get a clear and abiding sense upon thy mind and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of that sin wherewith thou art perplexed. Number one, of the guilt of it. It is one of the deceits of a prevailing lust to extenuate its own guilt. Is it not a little one? When I go and bow myself in the house of Rimmon, God be merciful to me in this thing. Though this be bad, yet it is not so bad as such and such an evil. Others of the people of God have had such a frame. Yea, what dreadful actual sins have some of them fallen into? Innumerable ways there are whereby sin diverts the mind from a right and due apprehension of its guilt. Its noisome exhalations darken the mind, that it cannot make a right judgment of things, perplexing reasonings, extenuating promises, tumultuating desires, treacherous purposes of relinquishment, hopes of mercy, all have their share in disturbing the mind in its consideration of the guilt of a prevailing lust. The prophet tells us that lust will do thus wholly when it comes to the height. Hosea 4.11 Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. The heart, that is the understanding, as it is often used in the scripture. And as they accomplish this work to the height in unregenerate persons, so in part in regenerate also. Solomon tells you of him who was enticed by the lewd woman, that he was among the simple ones. He was a young man, void of understanding. Proverbs 7, verse 7. And wherein did his folly appear? Why, says he in the 23rd verse, he knew not that it was for his life. He considered not the guilt of the evil that he was involved in. And the Lord, rendering a reason why his dealings with Ephraim took no better effect, give this account. Ephraim is like a silly dove without heart. Hosea 7, 11 had no understanding of his own miserable condition. Had it been possible that David should have lain so long in the guilt of that abominable sin, but that he had innumerable corrupt reasonings hindering him from taking a clear view of its ugliness and guilt in the glass of the law, this made the prophet that was sent for his awaking in his dealings with him to shut up all subterfuges and pretenses by his parable that so he might fall fully under a sense of the guilt of it. This is a proper issue of lust in the heart. It darkens the mind, and it shall not judge aright of its guilt. And many other ways it hath for its own extenuation that I shall not now insist on. Let this then be the first care of him that would mortify sin, to fix a right judgment of its guilt in his mind, to which end take these considerations of to thy assistance. 
Number one, though the power of sin be weakened by inherent grace in them that have it, that sin shall not have dominion over them as it hath over others, yet the guilt of sin that doth yet abide and remain is aggravated and heightened by it. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How shall we that are dead? The emphasis is on the word we. How shall we do it? who, as he afterward describes it, have received grace from Christ to the contrary. We doubtless are more evil than any if we do it. I shall not insist on the special aggravations of the sins of such persons, how they sin against more love, mercy, grace, assistance, relief, means, and deliverance than others. But let this consideration abide in thy mind. There is inconceivably more evil and guilt in the evil of thy heart that doth remain than there would be in so much sin if thou hadst no grace at all. Observe, number two, that as God sees abundance of beauty and excellency in the desires of the heart of his servants, more than in any of the most glorious works of other men, yea, more than in most of their own outward performances, which have a great mixture of sin than the desires and pantings of grace in the heart have, so God sees a great deal of evil in the working of lust in their hearts, yea, and more than in the open, notorious acts of wicked men, or in many outward sins, whereinto the saints may fall. Seeing against them there is more opposition made, and more humiliation generally followed them. Thus Christ, dealing with his decay and children, goes to the root with them, lays aside their profession. Revelation 3.15 I know thee. Thou art quite another thing than thou professest, and this makes thee abominable. So then, let thee things and the like considerations lead thee to a clear sense of the guilt of thy indwelling lust, that there may be no room in thy heart for extenuating or excusing thoughts, whereby sin insensibly will get strength and prevail. Number two, consider the danger of it which is manifold, of being hardened by the deceitfulness, this the Apostle sorely charges on the Hebrews, chapter 3, 12, and 13. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Take heed, saith he, use all means, consider your temptations, watch diligently. There is a treachery, a deceit in sin that tends to the hardening of your hearts from the fear of God. The hardening here mentioned is to the utmost, utter obduration. Sin tends to it, and every distemper and lust will make at least some progress towards it. Thou that was tender and disused to melt under the word, under afflictions, will grow as some have profanely spoken, sermon-proof and sickness-proof. Thou that didst tremble at the presence of God, thoughts of death and appearance before Him, when thou hadst more assurance of His love than now thou hast, shall have a stoutness upon thy spirit not to be moved by these things, 
Thy soul and thy sins shall be spoken of and spoken to, and thou shalt not be at all concerned, but shall be able to pass over duties, praying, hearing, reading, and thy heart not in the least affected. Sin will grow a light thing to thee, that will pass by it as a thing of naught. This it will grow too. And what will be the end of such a condition? Can a sadder thing befall thee? Is it not enough to make any heart to tremble to think of being brought into that estate wherein he should have slight thoughts of sin? Slight thoughts of grace, of mercy, of the blood of Christ, of the law, heaven and hell, come all in at the same season. Take heed. This is that thy lust is working towards, the hardening of the heart searing of the conscience, blinding of the mind, stupefying of the affections, and deceiving of the whole soul. The danger of some great temporal correction, which the scripture calls vengeance, judgment, and punishment. Though God should not utterly cast thee off for this abomination that lies in thy heart, yet he will visit thee with the rod Though he pardon and forgive, he will take vengeance on thy inventions. Oh, remember David and all his troubles. Look on him flying into the wilderness, and consider the hand of God upon him. Is it nothing to thee that God should kill thy child in anger, ruin thy estate in anger, break thy bones in anger, suffer thee to be a scandal and reproach in anger, kill thee, destroy thee, make thee lie down in darkness in anger? Is it nothing that he should punish, ruin, and undo others for thy sake? Let me not be mistaken. I do not mean that God does send all these things always on his in anger, God forbid. But this I say, that when he does so deal with thee, and thy conscience bears witness with him what thy provocations have been, thou wilt find in his dealings full of bitterness to thy soul. If thou fearest not these things, I fear thou art under hardness. Number three, loss of peace and strength all a man's days. To have peace with God, to have strength to walk before God, is the sum of the great promises of the covenant of grace. And these things is the life of our souls. Without them, in some comfortable measure, to live is to die. What good will our lives do us if we see not the face of God sometimes in peace, if we have not some strength to walk with Him? Now, both these will an unmortified lust certainly deprive the souls of men of. This case is so evident in David as that nothing could be more clear. How often doth he complain that his bones were broken, his soul disquieted, his wounds grievous on this account? Take other instances, Isaiah 57, 17. For the iniquity of his covetousness I was wroth and hid myself. What peace, I pray, is there to a soul while God hides himself, or strength whilst he smites? Hosea 5.15 I will go and return to my place, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. I will leave them, hide my face, and what will become of their peace and strength? If ever, then, thou hast enjoyed peace with God, if ever his terrors have made thee afraid, if ever thou hast had strength to walk with him, or ever, have or ever has mourned in thy prayer and been troubled because of thy weakness, think of this danger that hangs over thy head. It is perhaps but a little while, and thou shalt see the face of God in peace no more. Perhaps by tomorrow thou shalt not be able to pray, read, hear, or perform any duties with the least cheerfulness, life, or vigor. 
and possibly thou mayest never see a quiet hour whilst thou livest, that thou mayest carry about thee broken bones full of pain and terror all the days of thy life. Yea, perhaps God will shoot his arrows at thee, and fill thee with anguish and disquietness, with fears and perplexities, make thee a terror and an astonishment to thyself and others, show thee hell and wrath every moment, frighten and scare thee with sad apprehensions of his hatred, so that thy sore shall run in the night season, and thy soul shall refuse comfort, so that thou shalt wish death rather than life, yea, thy soul may choose strangling, Consider this a little, though God should not utterly destroy thee, yet he may cast thee into this condition, wherein thou shalt have quick and living apprehensions of thy destruction. Want thy heart to thoughts hereof, let it know what it is like to be the issue of its state. Leave not this consideration until thou hast made thy soul to tremble within thee. Number 4 there is the danger of eternal destruction. For the due management of this consideration, observe, number one, that there is such a connection between a continuance in sin and eternal destruction, that though God does resolve to deliver some from a continuance in sin, that they may not be destroyed, yet he will deliver none from destruction that continue in sin, so that whilst anyone lies under an abiding power of sin, the threats of destruction and everlasting separation from God are to be held out to him. So Hebrew 3:12 to which add chapter 10:38 This is the rule of God's proceeding if any man depart from him draw back through unbelief God's soul hath no pleasure in him that is his indignation shall pursue him to destruction so evidently Galatians 6 verse 8 Number two, that he who is so entangled, as above described, under the power of any corruption, can have at that present no clear prevailing evidence of his interest in the covenant, by the efficacy whereof he may be delivered from fear of destruction, so that destruction from the Lord may justly be a terror to him, and he may, he ought to look upon it, as that which will be the end of his course and ways. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. True, but who shall have the comfort of this assertion? Who may assume it to himself? They that walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. But you will say, Is not this to persuade men to unbelief? I answer, No. There is a twofold judgment that a man may make of himself, first, of his person, and secondly, of his ways. It is the judgment of his ways, not his person, that I speak of. Let a man get the best evidence for his person that he can. Yet to judge that an evil way will end in destruction is his duty. Not to do it is atheism. I do not say that in such a condition a man ought to throw away the evidences of his personal interest in Christ, but I say he cannot keep them. There is a twofold condemnation of a man's self, first, in respect of desert, when the soul concludes that it deserves to be cast out of the presence of God, and this is so far from a business of unbelief that it is an effect of faith. Secondly, with respect to the issue and event, when the soul concludes it shall be damned, I do not say this is the duty of anyone, nor do I call them to it, but this I say that the end of the way wherein a man is ought by him to be concluded to be death, that he may be provoked to fly from it. 
And this is another consideration that ought to dwell upon such a soul. If it desire to be freed from the entanglements of its lust. Number three, consider the evils of it. I mean its present evils. Danger respects what is to come. Evil, what is present. Some of the many evils that attend an unmortified lust may be mentioned. It grieves the holy and blessed spirit which is given to believers to dwell in them and abide with them. So the apostle, Ephesians 4, 25, 29, them from many lusts and sins, gives this as a great motive of it. Verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grieve not that Spirit of God, saith he, whereby you receive so many and so great benefits, of which he instances in one signal and comprehensive one, sealing to the day of redemption. He is grieved by it, as a tender and loving friend is grieved at the unkindness of his friend, of whom he has well deserved. So is it with this tender and loving spirit, who has chosen our hearts for a habitation to dwell in, and there to do for us all that our souls desire. He is grieved by our harboring his enemies, and those whom he is to destroy in our hearts with him. He does not afflict willingly, nor grieve us. Lamentation 3.33 And shall we daily grieve him? Thus is he said sometimes to be vexed, sometimes grieved at his heart, to express the greatest sense of our provocation. Now, if there be anything of gracious ingenuity left in the soul, if it be not utterly hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, this consideration will certainly affect it. Consider who and what thou art, who the Spirit is that is grieved, and what he hath done for thee, what he comes to thy soul about, what he has already done in thee, and be ashamed. Among those who walk with God there is no greater motive and incentive unto universal holiness and the preserving of their hearts and spirits in all purity and cleanness than this, that the blessed Spirit who hath undertaken to dwell in them as temples of God and to preserve them meet for him who so dwells in them is continually considering what they give entertainment in their hearts unto and rejoices when his temple is kept undefiled. That was a high aggravation of the sin of Zimri, that he brought his adulteress into the congregation in the sight of Moses and the rest, who were weeping for the sins of the people. Numbers 25, verse 6. And is it not a high aggravation of the countenance a lust, or suffering it to abide in the heart, when it is, as it must be if we are believers, entertained under the peculiar eye and view of the Holy Ghost, taking care to preserve His tabernacle pure and holy? Number two, the Lord Jesus Christ is wounded afresh by it. His new creature in the heart is wounded. His love is foiled. His adversary gratified as a total relinquishment of him by the deceitfulness of sin is the crucifying him afresh and the putting of him to an open shame. So every harboring of sin that he came to destroy wounds and grieves him. Number three, it will take away a man's usefulness in his generation. His works, his endeavors, his labors seldom receive blessing from God. 
If he be a preacher, God commonly blows upon his ministry that he shall labor in the fire and not be honored with any success or doing any work for God. And the like may be spoken of other conditions. The world is at this day full of poor, withering professors. How few are there that walk in any beauty or glory. How barren, how useless are they for the most part. Amongst the many reasons that they may be assigned of this sad estate, it may be justly feared that this is none of the least effectual. Many men harbor spirit-devouring lust in their bosoms that lie as worms at the root of their obedience and corrode and weaken it day by day. All graces, all the ways and means whereby any graces may be exercised and improved are prejudiced by this means. And as to any success, God blasts such men's undertakings. This, then, is my second direction, and it regards the opposition that is made to lust in respect of its habitual residence in the soul. Keep alive upon thy heart these are the like considerations of its guilt, danger, and evil. Be much in the meditation of these things. Cause thy heart to dwell and abide upon them. Engage thy thoughts into these considerations. Let them not go off nor wander from them until they begin to have a powerful influence upon thy soul until they make it tremble. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.